Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life. Today, we have award-winning investigative journalist and author of Countdown to Zero Day, Kim Zetter. We will dive into the world of state-level surveillance and what purpose it serves, how it has changed, and why it is easier today than ever before. Kim, we really appreciate you coming on today. Um, I think my first introduction to your work was actually Countdown to Zero Day. And um, that was right around the time I was getting into the industry. And so it was super interesting to hear about all of this crazy state-level I mean, espionage, uh, surveillance stuff that was put together in the Stuxnet virus, um, deployed out in the Natanz nuclear facility and, and all that jazz. But um, now you even have a uh, new, new space on Substack around kind of like nation-state surveillance and stuff called, called Zero Day. Is that correct? Yes. Just launched it in March. Great. And the and today we're going to be talking about surveillance. It's something that we've talked about. We've kind of touched on here and there in a number of our of our episodes, but really um, we haven't had the opportunity to sit down with somebody that is as, as big of an expert as as Kim. Um, so just to get started, Kim, can you kick us off with like what what's a general definition of surveillance? What are we talking about here? Um, well, if we're talking about government surveillance, because there's also corporate surveillance, um, but if we're focused on government surveillance, and by the way. Obviously, with the 20th anniversary of 9-11 just around the corner, that is when a lot of the U.S. uh, government surveillance really, uh, the modern uh, stuff of what we're talking about today, really kicked in. Uh, It is a sort of a consequence and a response to 9-11 that a lot of U.S. government surveillance expanded. Um, So what we're talking about when we're talking about government surveillance, it's obviously at various different levels. You can have state surveillance state government surveillance, and you could also have it at the federal level. Um, And then also um, outside of law enforcement, you have, of course, intelligence agency surveillance. Um, And they have different authorities um, for the kinds of surveillance that they can do. With uh, intelligence agencies, of course, their um, mandate is outside of the U.S. um, and excludes U.S. citizens, uh, although U.S. citizens do get a uh, pulled into that kind of surveillance. And in state and local surveillance, we're talking about going after criminal suspects, uh, potentially terrorist suspects, you know, drug traffickers, murderers, uh, a whole host of different kinds of crimes. And generally speaking, what is, what is the modern day purpose? What goal is this surveillance being conducted to achieve? I mean, it's the same as what used to be physical uh, surveillance in the past. You know, if you've got a criminal suspect and police are chasing him, they would do stakeouts, right? Um, You don't necessarily have to do that anymore. Instead, we've got this, you know, uh, geolocator in our mobile phones um, and in your laptops. And it's easy for them to locate you and track your movements, um, both in real time, uh, if they have authority to do that, but also historically in terms of the records that your telephone carrier um, stores about you. So the surveillance is, you know, it's switched. It's still sort of tracking the movements of people and also tracking their communications. But instead of it being, you know, tapping, wiretapping a telephone, um, you know, your, your, your handset um, or physically sitting outside your home and watching where you go, although they still do those things, 
um, they can do it in more remote ways now. Is there a particular category of people that are being targeted with this? Well, it really runs the sort of a swath. I mean, you know, criminal suspects obviously are the biggest category, uh, terrorist suspects. But what we've seen also is this kind of surveillance turned against uh, political activists, environmental activists, um, you know, when they have um, held demonstrations. Um, we see the government using stingray devices, um, which collect data on mobile phones. We see tracking going on there. Um, we also see, you know, surveillance on social media accounts where, you know, it's not very, uh, it's not sophisticated surveillance in that way, but it still is a type of surveillance in, in monitoring the communications, uh, even if those communications are public and open to everyone else. It sounds like the, the parties that are doing the surveillance, pretty, pretty clear from your description, uh, who is actually doing the targeting? Because I know one of the things that has come up recently is this whole Pegasus uh, software that we'll be talking about later. But uh, is it the same government entities that are actually doing the targeting themselves? Or this, is this kind of like being sent out to contractors and third parties? Um, so for law enforcement, um, there are legal authorities that you need to have in order to conduct the surveillance. And there are different authorities if you're at the FBI level. There are different authorities if you're at CIA or NSA. Um, and so you have to have that legal authority. It can't really be sort of contracted out wholly. However, there can be contractors that aid and assist um, with the use of the technology, for example. Um, you know, also in training and things like that, or maybe even sifting through the intelligence and helping understand it. Um, so there are contracts involved, um, usually in after the, the data is collected or in helping to maybe train, but the actual surveillance itself, um, as far as I know, um, would always be conducted or would need to be conducted by law enforcement. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about, I mean, when we get into the intelligence, that's different. If we're talking domestically, that's one thing. If your question is asking me about who's doing the targeting uh, at the NSA and CIA level, then yes, absolutely, we've got contractors doing that. Interesting. Okay, my, <laughs> my, my interest has peaked on that comment. Um, but one thing, uh, one thing that just kind of came to mind when you're mentioning the kind of like having to farm out to contractors the process of, of like actually analyzing the data. And I imagine that's due to just like massive volumes of data or what, what's the kind of general idea behind that? Um, it can be due to massive volumes of data. Like, you know, we've got Palantir um, that sifts through data, that company. Um, but obviously you need to have, uh, you can't just give this data to anyone, right? Uh, there's a, an issue uh, that just came up recently, actually it was just a couple of days ago, a, a court case, um, and the FBI disclosed to uh, the defense attorneys that some FBI agents who weren't actually working the case had access to the data that had been collected, and it was Palantir data. And it turns out that Palantir um, doesn't actually have, or is it implied in this letter, doesn't have controls that would limit who can view the data that's collected. And that's uh, sort of pretty shocking information because that's obviously shouldn't be the case. Um, so, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it should be limited specifically only to the FBI agents in that case, 
if it's we're talking about domestic um you know this isn't it, it, we should you shouldn't have a situation where a contractor is allowed to read the communications of a suspect um so it should be limited to authorized law enforcement i think that's been a problem since the beginning of having private contractors working with this this type of data right yes it is always a well let's let's take a peek and then maybe we can look at it gleam some information and then build a new tool off of it, right? We can say, oh, we're noticing XYZ items. This is a trend within these particular people. These, these, you know, this group is hiring us to look at. And now we can offer more services for these groups that are already hiring us to uh, expand our offerings to them and tailor it more so that they don't need to go any other place for additional, uh, you know, search types or information gathering methods and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's, I think it's worth exploring this further, um, that sort of synergy between those, those contractors who are providing the tools and the law enforcement agencies and exactly what, where the lines are drawn. Well, a lot of it's being used to sidestep uh, warrants within um, what we'll call domestic law enforcement, right? So if you have someone, a third party holding data and it's no longer being held by law enforcement itself, they can just do search inquiries to that data without having to go through the whole process for getting warrants and stuff like that. I know that's becoming more and more of a subject that the courts are looking at because that's exactly what's happening is people are just sidestepping the warrant process to be people being law enforcement um, and getting the same data that they would typically get, but they would need a warrant for. Now they can get it without a warrant, um, which is a very interesting paradigm when it comes to information sharing and law enforcement. I think anyway, that it's interesting um, and one that will become a bigger problem um, that more people will know about because it's already a huge problem in the next probably few years. Yeah, there's very little oversight in this regard. Um, just because the industry is so vast and no one really has a good handle on who all the players are and what everyone is doing and who they're working with. Um, and, you know, Congress has tried to do some oversight, um, but really has failed. This this is reminding me of the, I remember when like, I think it was when the PRISM, the yeah. PRISM documents first came out. And then the defense was like, well, we're not, we're not looking at the actual content of the communications. We're just looking at the metadata. Uh, and, and at the time, it was like, that was a defensible position to be like, well, we don't know what you're saying. We just know who you were talking to and when and how long. Um, and we know this kind of like over a long, long period. And it's, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the information security space pretty regularly is like information leakage, right? Like just because you're not being given the raw information that you might need, if you're given kind of tertiary information about it, you might be able to infer the points that you were looking for anyways. So that sounds like it might be related to, to what y'all are bringing up. Yeah, I mean, uh, so in some cases, it is just metadata. Um, certainly with the mobile carriers, that's a lot of the data um, that law enforcement is going after. Who talked to who, when, how long? Um, you know, who's uh, regularly in communication with someone um, and that was, you know, usually you, you got that in the old ways through a pen register trap and trace, uh, authority. 
um, which would tell you what numbers did someone call and what numbers called them. Um, and that's it. Um, the equivalent of that on the internet of pen register trap and trace, of course, is the email address um, and IP address, potentially like who's communicating with who in that way. Um, to get to the actual stored communication requires a different authority. Um, and that's when you get the unencrypted communications um, in, at least in terms of email, um, they can go after that. Um, but of course, with phone calls, there is no stored communication. So in that case, you are either having to tap in real time or, um, you know, you're sort of out of luck there. Um, and, you know, mobile communications are encrypted. So, you know, are you getting a key to decrypt uh, from the carriers? Though, you know, those are questions in terms of how every time, you know, security is added to these communications, government then, or at least this is what they cry, um, are suddenly shut out of monitoring communications. They could, they used to be able to tap a phone entirely and it wasn't encrypted. Um, and now all of these, you know, new methodologies of, of, of speaking, of communicating uh, in more secure manners have, have locked them out in many ways. Or so, or so they say. But they still manage, <laughs> they still manage to get this around, around this in many ways. So, uh, yes, most people aren't convinced that they're blocked out. Yeah, let me let me ask your specific opinion on this because you know one of the arguments is well this is just what they're going to say is they're always going to be saying well I, I need something more I need something more and it's just kind of a way to keep a political wedge in there to keep the door open and that like irrespective of how much access they have this will always be the strategy where do you fall in this argument do they have more or less than they used to and do they have more or less than they need they have less than they used to. But it depends on who you're talking about. If you're talking about the FBI, yeah, they have less than they used to. If you're talking about the NSA, no, <laughs> they don't. They don't have less. So um, it really comes down to what your capabilities are, what kind of legal authorities you have, and what are the tools that you're playing with. Um, you know, I mean, the NSA taps into telecom networks uh, directly. So you know, the FBI doesn't have that ability to simply tap into a network on its own. Um, so it really depends on who you're talking about, um, what they're targeting, and what tools they have, and legal authorities. You know, you can, you can also still go after someone through, um, it's called an NIT with the FBI. Um, I forget what it's the, it stands for, network. Um, maybe it's just network intrusion technique or something like that. But there you're talking about sort of, one-offs, right? Um, you're not talking about doing mass surveillance like the NSA is doing. You can implant uh, spyware on a target's computer going through the courts. The court will let you do that. We've seen this in cases with the child porn, um, freedom hosting, where the FBI got into um, the administrative controls, uh, seized control over um, freedom hosting of uh, child pornography sites, and then planted malware, spyware on the sites themselves so that anyone who accessed them would get this downloaded to their system. Um, I think that they may have limited it to certain IP addresses. Um, I forget, it happened so long ago now. Um, so you still have abilities, even with the encryption, even with the anonymizing 
technologies that people use to obscure their identity and their location, government still has methods. It's, it's a little more work for them, um, but they still have methods. Yeah, the NIT uh, is a network investigation technique, there, and yes. it falls under Rule 41 exactly. um, with the FBI. And yeah, that, if you talk to FBI agents, they're so funny. They think what they have, they're tooling, and uh, I'm a little biased, so here my bias is about to come out, everyone. They're tooling. They think it's like top tier, that everything that they need to do is super like seeker agent, <laughs> And then if, if you've actually dealt with like real tooling or if you built real tooling for intelligence agencies, you're just like, oh, here, here. That's cute. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'm sure the FBI agents that I speak to hate me for like patronizing them like that. But that's I mean, that's how I literally feel every single time I talk to them. And it's like, oh, that's cool. You have to get a warrant to like actually install something on someone's computer. Man, your job must suck. Well, uh, yes. There are higher, hierarchies, hierarchies of privilege, aren't there? Um, there are the very much so. is on, you know, that lower, uh, that lower rung compared to NSA and CIA, definitely. But they don't want they don't want people to think that they want to think they have the best tools ever. Yes. And uh, but yeah, that's uh, yeah. Rule forty one. I mean, that's a crazy. I mean, we don't have time to dive into that um, here in this episode. But that is a crazy space. If any of the listeners have not ever heard of this item, look up FBI Rule forty one, and it doesn't just apply to the FBI. But it is such a crazy deep dive. Your mind will be blown with. What authority and, and what permissions can be granted to law enforcement um, and, and what they can and cannot do? So, Yeah, yeah that Rule 41, I, I mean, I won't dive into it deeply, as you, as you said, but it came up, you know, in the Freedom Hosting because when you have an international um, web service like that and you've got customers coming from all over and you've got FBI um, tracking, they lose um they lose their um authority outside of their jurisdiction and so the rule 41 issue came up about whether or not they had the legal authority to be infecting any system that um that visited this website if they didn't know where this system was located and because people were using anonymizers like tor um they couldn't determine um where people were accessing so they could be infecting systems in europe and they don't have the authority to do that or there's an FBI agency in, let's say, New Jersey that's conducting this, um, but they're infecting systems that are outside of New Jersey and outside of their jurisdiction. Um, so the questions came up about whether or not they could do this, and the courts were very, um, let's say, uh, lenient with them around this. Yeah, it is uh, It is something I think that needs to be reevaluated, but I don't think it will be reevaluated for a very long time until the masses really under start un start understanding what what is happening in that type of space, um, which may never happen. Do, but all you have to do is say it's a child porn investigation and the masses are behind it. Yes, this is true, right? That's, and then I, that's why I, the government uses child porn cases as their as their example cases to get to push for new authorities. Yep. because they know that they will get sympathy for that. Of course. I mean, you got to you got to you got to use the tools that you're given, right? And yeah. if that's if that's what is going to be sparking up the most interest, then you got to you got to take it and abuse it as much as you can. Um, that, <laughs> what? I don't know if that's such a, I don't know if that's such a given. 
Because at the same time, I don't know. I, there, there's a story about this about a wolf and a girl <laughs> that it does it, it teaches you exactly not to do this. <laughs> We've mentioned a, a few different techniques and and approaches that nation state surveillance might take. Uh, are there any specific programs of note that we should know about within the United States? Um, for FBI surveillance within the U.S. Uh, sorry, I, as as American citizens, uh, surveillance programs that American intelligence agencies may may be using. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I that's a hard, tough question to to answer. Um, what you mean by programs? I mean, are, are you asking about a specific technology like Pegasus, or are you asking about a program for collecting? Um, massive amounts of data because they, each program has different names. It's a little unclear what you're what you're talking about. Yeah, to rephrase Chris's question, um, what what major programs of note um, that maybe some people already know of and maybe some don't know of would come to the top of your mind when it comes to surveillance programs ran by the U.S. Right? You 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 mentioned before Prism, right? That's that's one of them. Are there any other ones that come to your mind? I mean, the Snowden documents, the leaked Snowden documents in 2013 exposed a lot of different programs. They exposed a program to collect the cell phone records of Americans. Um, it exposed programs to, like the prison program, to um, collect data um, through the court system from internet providers, but also uh, to tap into undersea cables outside of the U.S. Um, and grab data that was being, you know, sent unencrypted to Google servers, Yahoo servers, things like that. There are tons of these programs. It's really hard to hone in on one or another. Um, and, you know, a lot of them are happening, uh, you know, in the Middle East, uh, because that's where a lot of the targets for counterterrorism purposes have been. And, you know, there we're talking about taking over like entire telecom networks, entire, entire mobile networks in order to spy on targets. Um, you know, we have government use of stingrays here in the U.S. by the FBI. Stingray obviously is an MC catcher that masquerades as a cell tower in, t in order to trick phones into connecting to it, um, which allows the FBI to track the location of a, of a device. Well, that technology began overseas in the military uh, and used with intelligence agencies, and it has many more uh, powerful capabilities. Um, with the stingrays overseas, they're not just tracking phones, they're actually able to intercept communications there. They're actually able to do man in the middle attacks where they will um, intercept communications and then pass it on to the intended recipient, but also do network injection attacks where they will infect the phones uh, that connect to the Stingray. They don't actually call it a Stingray there. There are different names for it. Um, so the techniques are obviously more sophisticated and different levels depending on, you know, like what we talked about before, what the authorities are and, and the location of the surveillance. Yeah, and for the Stingray, for the listeners, if you want to know the current system that is developed by Harris, um, the Stingray is what we use as like a colloquial term now. It is a name of their product, um, but Hailstorm is currently one of their latest products that is the latest generation of that. 
uh, right now. And um, what Kim was talking about as well with the, you know, locating, intercept, and inject in the surveillance world, uh, that is typically known as TTLII. And that is tag, track, locate, intercept, and inject. Oh, nice. And th- these are methods that are used to, depending on, you know, how, how far that you can go, domestically, law enforcement is allowed to do TTL, tag, track, and locate. And then they can get a warrant and then they have to work with marshals or FBI um, to uh, or ATF uh, to then do intercept. And uh, the part where we do uh, inter- uh, in- inject or, or we actually push code down, that particular part uh, is very, uh, I'm not going to say rarely done, um, but it is, it, it is, I can almost, I can definitely say it's rarely done by by domestic law enforcement, and and we're dealing in the federal territory, definitely at that point of time. But even the FBI, um, it does it on a very limited basis. So, but yeah, these and these, only relatively these, recently, yeah. only in the Correct. last, yeah, they only, uh, only started tw- doing tw- that. Uh, twenty eighteen, I believe, is when it was first pushed out as like a generic offering. Though there were companies that were doing it beforehand, um, as early as 2012 is the earliest instance that I know personally of it being done. Um, but it wasn't widely offered as like a service for um, FBI or anything like that. Uh, they wouldn't have known what to do with it in 2012. Uh, yes, I'm very aware. <laughs> <laughs> with all the stuff that's being said, I'm already feeling kind of like anxious and uh, like (laughs) surrounded. It sounds to me like we are, doesn't matter if you're domestic or international, you're getting tracked in some way, shape or form. And Kim, a lot of your work, you're kind of at the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff. Are there any programs or technologies or things that you feel are particularly egregious? I mean, like whether or not they're lawful is one thing, but whether or not they're overstepping, I don't know, like hearing these different things where it's like, okay, yes, in foreign countries, we just exploit phones without, you know, there's no, there's no legal framework to bind us not to. Uh, is, is there anything that you personally would say there's a, there's a special part in your heart for how bad it is or how good it is? Um, how bad it is in terms of how invasive it is? Yeah, yeah. Whether it's ethically, morally, like it's targeting the wrong people, any, any of the above. Well, I mean, you know, Pegasus is the easy target on this right now just because it's, you know, taken up so many headlines and because of the, you know, the the massive splash of stories um, a few weeks ago. So I think that, you know, that's the one that gets the headlines, but there are a lot of different other tools that are doing the same things that aren't getting the big splash. Um, I think oversight of this has been a problem for a long time. You know, we had the same issues come up with Hacking Team where they insisted, the Italian company, where they insisted that their surveillance software was only sold to government agencies and intelligence agencies for legitimate uh, tracking purposes. And then, of course, we're seeing it show up on systems of um, dissidents and journalists. And I wrote a story in 2013 about a woman in the U.S. who was critical of the Gulenists in Turkey and suddenly she's getting targeted with uh, hacking team surveillance software, supposedly to- sold to Turkey. So um, this has been a problem for a long time. These companies are not transparent about how exactly they are vetting customers 
and how exactly they're monitoring the usage of the tools by their customers. They claim that they do monitor and that if they see any abuses, they cut out those customers. But what we saw with Pegasus, of course, is that Pegasus has been warned multiple times. Uh, Pegasus, NSO group, which makes Pegasus, has been warned multiple times about the abuses of its software. And mostly what it does is deny the news reports. Um, they claim that they investigate with customers. I spoke with them about that. I asked them how exactly they do this investigation. Um, they don't have any logging capability themselves, they said. So when it comes to looking at what a customer is actually using it for, they have to get permission of the customer um, to go into the system. Um, it's written into the terms of service, so the customer can't deny them access. But um, NSO Group then will go into the system remotely um, and do their own searches. They've told me it's a log file. It's an encrypted log file, so the customer can't alter it um, and can't view it themselves. This is what they've said. Um, I've asked them, you know, yes, I, know, I see you're shaking your head. Um, but this is the issue, right? This is the issue that we, um, there's no overriding authority over any of this. Um, there's no international court um, that you can take this to and say, um, you know, where is, where's the oversight on these international companies? So it really is up to, you know, individual nations where these companies are located. And as we've seen with the NSO group, which is uh, based in Israel, the Israeli government has actually overridden um, decisions by NSO to cut out certain customers. NSO had decided that they were going to cut out Saudi Arabia, for example. And the Israeli government, according to news stories, intervened and asked them to continue to do work with Saudi Arabia. So you have a lot of competing political interests because, of course, Israel has interest in whatever intelligence Saudi Arabia can get that Israel can't get in the Middle East. And, of course, they want, you know, the Pegasus tools to continue to be used by Saudi Arabia so that they hopefully, Israel can hopefully benefit from whatever intelligence is gained from that. So... We have a problem with the, 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 the lack of oversight and also the lack of will for oversight. I, I just find the statement so laughable on its face that it's like, oh, yes, private sector company sells elite hacking software to intelligence agency and then tells intelligence agency, we need to know that you're using this for good and you're going to need to be able to give us logs so we can verify it. Like, yeah, really? Is that 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 just I, you know maybe it's possible maybe it happens in some cases but I feel like that's just that's such that's such an absurd premise on its face that like I, I don't know how that's even a there's nothing position. that there's nothing that requires them to do anything else there's nothing that requires companies operating in this space to have some kind of um, um, un uh, to have some kind of system that can't be tampered with um, in order to monitor this activity there's there's no sort of set of standards that they have to meet for conducting oversight of customers. There's no set of standards. Well, actually, I mean, there's there's a certain set of standards in Israel uh, that's done by the Ministry of Exports. Or that's not what it's called. I can't remember what the name of it is. But they do monitor the sale of these products uh, by Israeli companies. Um, and in this case, it was that ministry that actually told NSO, please continue selling to Saudi Arabia. So um, again, it's there's a lack of will 
uh, to really crack down on these companies and to demand uh, any kind of anything more stringent from them. And you have to remember as well as Israel, I mean, they're, they're essentially what we'll call the big brother, right? Uh, which is the United States for Israel uh, probably has something to do with like, hey, keep on giving Saudi Arabia like this data, right? Like keep on giving them those capabilities because the U.S. has a strong interest in allowing Saudi Arabia to yes. do a lot of things that people just, they like, they overlook and they're like, wow, why would the U.S. want to do that? And that's a whole long conversation well, outside yes, of this. But, exactly. Yeah. You've got, I mean, we, we had this with the, the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, where yes. it, all Crazy. of the, all the evidence pointed and there was nothing done. There was no, no punishment, no. So, uh, yes, I mean, the, the, the politics always override national security interests. Yeah. And, and, and it's shameful that that is where we are in the world of geopolitical and, and geosurveillance, right? Is that clearly, I mean, using dissidents uh, as the one that you just gave an example of, like nothing will ever be done. And that's the sad part about that is like nothing will ever be done. And this this trend will continue to be abused for other items outside of just dissidents, right? It's going to be abused for other surveillance methods not even imagined yet, which are going to be super invasive. Well, I mean, that's the, that's the thing is like, you know, until uh, it's law, the lawmakers and the politicians themselves that become the victims of the tools – um, there's no interest in anyone doing this. We've seen this over and over again in the U.S., um, where you know things like uh, at, the, at the most basic level, your video rental records um, were available to anyone until a politician's video rental records were were obtained and used against him. And then there's a law that's passed in order to prevent um, anyone from sharing your video rental records. Um, we saw, we've seen this in, you know, trying to get Congress interested in, um, you know, some kind of legislation over stingrays. Um, it wasn't until someone showed that there was, appeared to be stingrays tracking politicians out in Washington, D.C., and then suddenly these politicians are, you know, in fear that the Russians, um, or maybe Israel, um, is intercepting their phone calls using stingrays, things like that. So again, it's, it's only until, you know, if you get the prime minister of Israel um, caught up in one of these tools, um, let's say, you know, Saudi Arabia is using Pegasus tool. Uh, NSO group obviously says that the tool can't be used against their own country. It can't be used in the U.S. It can't be used against people in Israel. So they've built in these little protections that will actually prevent them from getting too much heat, right? Because if someone in the U.S. or Israel is tracked with this, then they know they're, that's it for them. That's the end. Um, so they always sort of operate within these boundaries that are going to prevent. And also NSO Group knows that the headlines are going to pass, right? And they did. I mean, who's talking about Pegasus and NSO right now when we've got Afghanistan? Um, so they know that all they have to do is sort of, you know, write it out and some other major international incident is going to take over the headlines and they don't have to think about it. Definitely. I mean, Edward Snowden showed that, right? Like there was so much leaked that he that he let out and people forgot about it two weeks later. I literally thought there was going to be riots in the street because of the information that was let out and nothing happened. People oh. were worried about the Kardashians at that time. No, right? there were like, there were things that happened. There are the, the the leaks did lead to changes in NSA programs. It led to, to Capitol Hill hearings. 
Um, the government had to stop collecting those phone records. Um, you know, it, it was now put back on the carriers to store the phone records, but the government couldn't, couldn't collect them like that. Um, I think a lot happened from the Snowden leaks. Um, there was certainly a lot more oversight. Um, task force, the government, NSA had to produce reports about um, the number of Americans who were getting caught up in these collections. Um, so there was a lot of awareness and a lot that did happen from that. Maybe from the average American, like you're, you're right. The people watching yeah. the Kardashians <laughs> are never yeah, going well, to care <laughs> about anything about the Kardashians. <laughs> that's what I was talking about. It's the average American, right? Yeah. They, they're still largely unaffected by the, the data that was released. Yeah. Um, they're their day-to-day life. Yeah. It's been brought up a few times so far. So why don't we just jump right in and talk about it explicitly? Because you know we we've all the three of us here have been ta- have been reading the news, and it's been all over the security space. I think it's like this and Apple's CSAM uh, device side device side scanning are like the only two things that are in, in infosec news right now. Um, but the Pegasus software, which is some spyware that was authored by an Israeli firm called the NSO Group. Kim, can you tell us a bit more about like what what is Pegasus and why do we know about it now? Um, we know about Pegasus because it started to get detected on systems. Um, you know, human rights organizations like Amnesty International um, and then the Citizens Lab uh, Technology Group in Canada um, started to find journalists and activists um, whose phones were being infected by this, and in some cases thrown in jail. Uh, thrown in prison in oppressive regimes um, over the surveillance that was collected on their phones. And so this is how it really, we've known about the technologies before Pegasus, obviously, like I said, hacking team existed. Um, There's, and there are a number of other groups. uh, Some of their names are escaping me right now. So Pegasus is an uh, NSO group and their Pegasus software isn't the first tool like this. Um, but occasionally there is a company in their tool that sort of rises to the top and gets a lot of attention. Um, and then I, I, you know, I think that um, there's just a lot more uh, interest now in surveillance um, than there used to be. And I think that that's also helped these stories get attention and, and focus on the companies. And, and what does the software do specifically? Well, it has a, a lot of capabilities in terms of the mobile phone. It can, um, you know, it can turn on the microphone on the phone. And so uh, the attackers can then listen to conversations that are happening in the vicinity of the phone. I mean, how many people put the phone, their mobile phone on their desk at work or on the restaurant's table when you're having a meal? Um, the phone is always there. It's not it's rarely in your pocket. Um, and so turning on that as a listening device is very beneficial. It can obviously um, also enable the camera to snap pictures of who's talking. Um, it can grab keystrokes of what's being um, written uh, in text messages, um, in emails, it grabs all of the contents. It can grab photos, uh, you know, browsing history, um, location data. Um, really, whatever the phone is collecting on you, the user, um, it can grab. And then it can send back remotely to the attackers. Um, and also they can work, they can uh, communicate or operate with your phone in real time. Um, if they, they can set it to have alerts 
so that it will tell the operator that your phone is now in the vicinity of another phone that they're tracking. And so that suggests that you are actually meeting in person with this person. And then they may enable the, the microphone at that point um, on both of your phones or on one of your phones. Um, it has the ability to sort of do geofencing and know when you're in a certain location um, and then kick in surveillance to track you, your movements then. Um, so there's just a lot of a lot of different capabilities. It's a very powerful tool. And it's not just the tool once it gets on there. They have powerful ways of getting it onto your mobile phone. Uh, NSO, NSO Group has exploits that bypass um, all of Apple's security, uh, most latest security right now. Um, and the exploits are no-click exploits so that you don't even have to actually see um, a text message appear on your phone. You don't have to click on anything. It simply is an automatic exploit. So the capabilities there are really strong and the, um, the cloak, uh, cloakness, I guess, um, that's not a word, um, is high at a high level. Cloaking. Yeah, it's, it's surreptitious, right? Mm-hmm. So it, uh, it doesn't need anything to exploit and it, uh, it, it is extremely hard to detect on most people's And they devices. did have... They did have the ability for persistence. Um, there was something about that. The Amnesty International said that the versions that they had examined this in this latest round didn't have persistence capability. So if you shut down your phone and then rebooted, um, the, the malware couldn't stay on the phone. Um, they had to keep infecting. But um, NSO Group did used to have uh, the ability to ha- get root on the phone and maintain persistence through a reboot. And for some reason... Um, they use that only in limited circumstances because that um, makes it easier to find Pegasus if it's mm-hmm. if it's staying on the phone. Um, and so in many cases, that's the trade-off is that you have uh, spyware that can be eliminated when the phone is rebooted, but a lot of people don't reboot their phones. Um, and I think that that's what they're counting on. Um, and they can remain more stealth if they're not using the persistent mode. Very much so, yeah. Who who uses Pegasus? Because I know you were saying earlier that oh well you know clearly that, that we we only sell to intelligence agencies and we do verification that you're not using this for anything bad. But but you know, there's no way that that's entirely true. So who who do we know that uses Pegasus now? Well, I mean, NSO Group is not transparent with it about its customer list. Um, they won't provide that. But um, based on you know the p- kinds of people who had have have had their their uh, their devices infected with it, um, we can assume that those people are being spied on by their own nations. Um, in some cases, they may have been infected by other nations. But if you've got journalists and uh, political dissidents in, let's say, Saudi Arabia, who are getting infected. The assumption there is that it was the Saudi Arabian government or intelligence agencies that are behind that infection. Um, that may not be all, always be the case, um, but that's what we go on in terms of the sales. Unless there's, you know, unless there are contracts or leaks from NSO Group about who the customers are, um, we primarily have to go um, by who the victims are and where they are located, what countries they're located in. And also, you know, um, NSO Group has told me that their software, when a customer has the software, the customer um, themselves, their account is limited to to regions. Um, And that is intended to prevent 
um, a government in one country from then spying. So it's not just that they block any numbers in the US, they block any numbers in Israel. There may be, let's say, I don't know if they sell to Iran, um, <laughs> but there may be, you know, an, an agency that they, they sell to, but they don't want that agency to use it in neighboring countries. And so they have the ability, they've said, to limit the regions um, where their customers can use. Whenever I hear things like this, I just again I'm super skeptical, right? Because you have to you have to trust that there's no transparency. A, yeah, yeah. There's there's no transparency, and there is a there's no transparency. B there's significant motivation to play things down, right? To like if if there's no way for it to be verified or no way for it to be be proven as untrue, then why not say the thing that is going to make the least of a, uh, the, the small splash possible? So. Um, I don't know the, the the evidence that we do have, and then the statements around like, oh yeah, well we're really really responsible with this. I don't, they don't. It doesn't feel like they agree to me. Um, and it did. What, what was the NSO surveillance list that dropped in the past few days? Um, so it dropped a few weeks ago, and it was um, a target list. It, it, we have to put sort of quotation marks around this. This was a list. Um, or a database that was provided to an organization in France. Um, it's sort of an independent journalism outlet, investigative journalism outlet. And it purports to be a list of, target, of targets who customers of NSO Group have um, decided that who, sorry, back up. The list purports to be a list of people that customers of NSO Group would like to target or have targeted. So it, it's been described as kind of a wish list. And in some cases, the people on those lists actually have been targeted for surveillance. And in other cases, um, they supposedly are on the list just because someone thought is was putting together a list and deciding who, who would we like to spy on. Um, the way it's been characterized by this France uh, journalism outlet, they shared the list with a bunch of different media outlets around the world, um, including the Washington Post here in the U.S. Um, the way that they have characterized it is that it is um, from a certain time period um, only, um, and the phone numbers are... Um, they're not identified. It's just the phone number. And so they had to figure out who the phone numbers belongs to um, and what countries those phones were, were based in. Um, NSO Group has pushed back on this. Um, the journalists only were able to actually track down a little more than 100 um, phones in terms of identifying who they belong to. I'm sorry, they, they tracked down... I'm sorry, I need to refresh my memory. They may have tracked down a thousand. There are 50,000 numbers on this list. And I think they, they, they identified who owned about a thousand of them. But out of those thousand phones, they were only able to actually examine, physically examine a hundred of those phones to see if they were infected with spyware. And out of those hundred that they were actually able to examine, um, it was around 30 that actually showed evidence of spyware being on them or evidence of being uh, an attempted infection on them. So that's room for a lot of error, right? We don't know for certain that this is a list um, of uh, NSO customers, uh, that, this was, that something was made by them. Um, NSO Group uh, has said that a few weeks before the story broke, um, someone had been 
peddling a list like this uh, to da through data brokers. Um, and they claimed that it was also coming from NSO, but NSO says they don't store any of, any of this. They don't have the list of phone numbers that their customers are targeting. So there's a lot of mystery around this list. But it, it, the bottom line is that there are some people on this list who indeed there is evidence that they were targeted with the Pegasus software or did indeed have the Pegasus software installed on their phones. But 50,000 is a lot of numbers. 50,000 is a lot of numbers. And with a sample size of 100, 30%, clearly, clearly they're not random, right? Like if you just took 50,000 numbers at random, took 100, 100 phones from those people and then analyzed them, Pegasus wouldn't be on the signs of Pegasus being on 30% of those phones is not something you would expect, expect in a random sample. Um, but the, the other thing is, is those hundred phones that they, that they examined, you know, they were probably going after people that they, that they, I brace this in mm -hmm. my piece. I mean, how did they select mm -hmm. those 100 people to actually examine those phones? Right. Were they people that they already knew were being surveilled anyway? Were they people that were more likely had been to surveil than any of the other 50,000 people? Any of, of the, more than any of the other 50,000 people that were on the list. So it can be, that sample can be skewed by, you know, how you took that sample. It's not a random sample, you know. It is probably a sample of journalists that they knew um, and activists that they knew that and already suspected had been targeted. So we're getting towards the end here. And uh, <laughs> one of the things we like to try to provide to our, our listeners is tips on how they can protect themselves. And so, Kim, do you have any hot tips for how individuals might be able to protect, protect themselves from surveillance, or is it even possible to? Reboot your phone. <laughs> Doing that right now. <laughs> <laughs> One way, but of course you have to reboot it. You know, if, if you're a hot target for surveillance, you're going to have to reboot it regularly. Uh, so... Um, yeah, I mean, reboot your phone. Um, obviously, um, keep up with patches because they need to get um, the spyware onto your laptop or onto your phone using vulnerabilities that are unpatched. Um, and you want to just keep them jumping, right? Um, patching up one vulnerability, they're going to have to find something else. So I think those are the, the two things, um, you know, is in terms of surveillance is patching and, um, and rebooting. I mean, if you're more sophisticated, you know, you can have someone monitoring the traffic, you know, monitoring what data is being is leaving your phone or leaving your laptop. If you've got, you know, someone who's skilled with Wireshock or something um, and um, can set that up and, you know, see if you've got a lot of stuff leaving um, and then you've got a better chance. Also, you know, uh, Amnesty International released a tool uh, to help detect if Pegasus is on the phone. It's, you know, it's. It's not a plug and play. It requires some, some skill to actually operate. Um, but you know, you can probably find someone if you're not technically inclined who can help you uh, try and detect if you're, if you're targeted. But most people are not gonna be targeted with Pegasus and certainly not in the US um, because it's not supposed to be used here against US funds. And that tool is for the older versions of Pegasus, or does it work for the newer ones? I, I believe it's for the, the latest that they were finding, oh. they examined. Yeah. Very cool. And so, Kim, we're, we're kind of here at the end, and, and you know, we want to give you the opportunity to talk about what you're working on or direct people towards your, your blog. We're 
are there any other additional points that you would like to make that you would like to share with our audience either on this topic or or even just talk about kind of what you've got going on personally? No, I think, I mean, I'm, you know, it always makes me happy when people are interested in talking about surveillance and are interested in or concerned about whether or not they're being surveilled. Um, you know, most people think that they don't have anything to worry about because they're not committing any crimes. But if you are politically active at all, um, you know, you could be surveilled. If you have, if, if you um, associate with people who are politically active, if you go overseas and you're, you know, working for an organization or a company that might be of interest to an intelligence agency, um, they, you know, may be tracking your laptop and your phone and things like that. And so people, um, I think people, they, they assume that they're not going to be a target. And I don't think that you should assume. Um, so especially if you're working in the tech industry, um, and you're, or you're working in defense or you're working for any kind of company, uh, that has really significant and important, uh, intellectual property. Um, you know, we're not just talking about government surveillance here. We're talking about economic surveillance, uh, economics, uh, espionage. Um, so I'll leave it at that. All right. Well, Kim, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Uh, always good chatting with you and, and learning from you. Um, so again, thank you very much. We'll have uh, links to Kim's articles and her book down below in the show notes. If you want to go check those out. The three takeaways for today's show are one surveillance is ubiquitous Two. The Pegasus software is a recent piece of Israeli spyware making the news. And three, reboot your phone <laughs> as a hot tip from, from Mrs. Zetter. We would like to thank Kim Zetter for sharing her expansive knowledge on the subject of surveillance today. If you would like to read more about what was talked about, make sure to pick up Kim's book, Countdown to Zero Day, and read her awesome research on Pegasus on Substack. As always, we will have links to these in the show notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Security Explained. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting, and you might be able to pick our next show. Feel free to reach out via social media or give us a rating on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at SecExplained. Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe. Stay safe.